Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 8 of Bad Gays, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwulis Museum in Berlin. And my name's Hugh Lemmy. I'm a writer and author. Last week, we talked about uh, Freddie Mercury, the um, rock star at the head of Queen, who managed to be about seven different incredibly fabulous kinds of gay men all wrapped up in one. Um <laughs> Who are we talking about this week on the show, Hugh? And and we do have two episodes in a row from you, but uh, we couldn't resist this topic for this week because it's ripped from the yeah. headlines, as I understand. Yeah, right. Yeah, unusually for the show, yeah, which normally we focus on often long departed historical figures. Today we're going to talk about someone who's still very much in the news, uh, the woman who was until last week, um, if you're listening to this episode when it comes out, uh, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, London's police force, and who was the first woman and the first LGBTQ person to hold the rank, Dame Cressida Dick. What gay liberation was calling for all those years. More gay cops. More yeah, gay right. cops. Well, this is perhaps what we'll focus on. Uh, and also, actually, unusually, as we um, we really want to cover this story properly and to go into some depth, both about uh, the Met Police uh, and, and Cressida Dick herself, we've decided to make this profile of her um, a two-parter. So today we'll discuss some history of the Met and its relationship with LGBTQ people especially. And then you can join us next week as we'll go into more depth on Cressida Dick's uh, very checkered career in the police force. But before we start, a few notes about the contents of this episode. Uh, first of all, as we're dealing with the recent history of the Metropolitan Police, I would advise that on this show we'll be discussing um, police brutality, racism, sexual violence, harassment, extreme misogyny, um, and homophobia, and sometimes in very graphic terms when that's necessary. Secondly, as this show is called Bad Gays, and it is about um, homosexuality and queerness and how that interacts with the lives of our subjects, there will be a, a focus on the relationship of the Met to LGBTQ people uh, in particular that isn't necessarily proportionate to the sort of coverage of other issues, such as race and the importance of race in the history of, of the Met Police. And this isn't due to us not taking the Met's history of racism extremely seriously, and we will cover it, but rather because um, the focus of our show is, of course, on sexuality. But that said, if you would like to learn more about the Met's history of institutional racism and its relationship with ethnic minorities in London and in the UK, um, there will be a, a sort of wide range of resources that I'll reference at the end of the show um, and in the show notes. But that said, uh, let's start with Cressida Dick herself. Dick was born in October 1960 in Oxford, the very beautiful medieval city in the centre of England that is, of course, uh, the home to Oxford University, one of the world's most prestigious universities. Due to the university, it's a, it's a very middle-class town, although with a strong, um, what's called a, a, a town-and-gown divide, a slightly adversarial relationship between the locals, many of whom traditionally work in service industries for the, the university and those visiting. And then those linked to the university, to the university itself, who are often transitory or, and they also have a sort of reputation for elitism and snobbery towards non-university locals. But despite being a local, Dick was uh, very much on the gown side of the divide. Both of her parents were academics who taught at the university. Her father was a tutor at Balliol College and her mother was a historian at Wolfson College. Dick's stock was, was firmly middle class. Her maternal grandfather was an Oxford grad and a wing commander in the RAF. Her great-grandfather was a banker, an alderman, and a Cambridge grad, and so on throughout the whole family. 
in fact, the family is um, a litany of such characters, you know, high sheriffs, public school headmasters, um, the first practicing female doctor in Scotland, and so on. And she talks quite frequently, actually, about her family's history of public service. Uh, Cressida was the youngest of three kids, and when she was eight, her parents divorced. Again, quite unusual in the uh, mid-60s. Her father died when she was 11, and her education was what you'd expect from a girl of her class position, uh, prep school, and then Oxford High School, which is a girls' private day school, which is just a short walk from Wolfson College. She then went on to Oxford University herself, becoming one of the first women to study at the college in, uh, in 700 years. At her college. Um, she studied ag- agriculture and forest sciences. And at university, she was a keen sportswoman playing cricket and becoming captain of the women's rowing team. Is rowing a particularly gay sport? Like, in my mind, it is, but that's because of, I, get, I don't know, bad sort of German softcore films. I don't know if rowing is a particularly gay sport. I mean, I've been watching uh, the Olympics, which I've been on, and after seeing a couple rounds of figure skating, rowing looks like the very picture of stoic, heterosexual masculinity <laughs> and femininity to me. But, you know, that's maybe because I think that there isn't really a sport that couldn't do with a bit of illusion netting and sequence and some blasts of dry <laughs> ice and actually several queen medleys uh, speaking to our to our last show. Um, following her graduation, uh, she actually decided against following her parents into academia or even actually working in agriculture, which she had studied. Um, she tried a, a short spell training in accountancy, and she even worked for a while in a, in a chippy, a fish and chip shop, before in 1983 joining the Met, the Metropolitan Police. Um, and she started at the bottom, as I think everyone did in those days, uh, working on the streets on her beat, which was around London's West End. Uh, One wonders really what that experience must have been like for her, having been raised in this rarefied atmosphere of Oxford in uh, what Victorian poet Matthew Arnold called the city of dreaming spires. And now she was walking a beat around the heart of London's sex industry and also London's gay village in Soho. The West End at that time was quite a rundown sort of place and Soho in particular was regarded as seedy, if not dangerous. Um, listeners to our episode earlier this season about Francis Bacon will understand that it hosted a particular demimonde of, of drinkers, sex workers and clients, uh, gamblers, queers and criminals, importantly. There's two things to consider here, two things in tension with each other, which will shape much of this conversation over the next two episodes. The first is um, is Dick's relationship to the wider police force, both as a woman as a le- and as a lesbian. And the second is Dick's relationship to minorities as a member of the police force. We don't really have time to cover the entire history of the Met here. Uh, Very briefly, it has its roots in the mid-18th century Bow Street Runners, which are a sort of professional police force established by the novelist and magistrate Henry Fielding. And the Metropolitan Police itself was founded by the um, then Home Secretary and future Prime Minister, Sir Robert Peel, in 1829 supposedly along the so-called Peelian principles of um, policing by consent, that the, the police were seen as citizens in uniform. However, he, he also took techniques, unsurprisingly, that he'd honed in Britain's colonial possessions, most notably in Ireland. And for more information on this, if you're interested, I can really recommend the podcast Human Resources um, by Moya Lothian McLean, which addresses the legacy of colonialism within the UK itself. And there's an episode that covers Peel's legacy in particular. That's well worth listening to. Uh, as we've discussed 
before on the show, this is a very much a recurrent dynamic within European society in the modern era, this feedback loop between the othering of colonial subjects, which is then brought back to help understand and discipline especially proletarian workers in, in Europe, and colonies becoming um, testing grounds essentially for experiments in social control. The history of women in policing in London is also a, a long and frankly a very strange one. It has its roots in a particular subsection of the suffragist movement at the turn of the 20th century. And it was, this was part of the suffragist movement, which is just one constituent part, because the movement had a, a number of ideological branches. Um, but this was one that was intimately tied in with both class-based anxieties around sexual immorality in working-class women and with the anti-vivisectionist movement, which was particularly strong in late Victorian England. This would be sort of the uh, gaslight, gatekeep, girl boss section of the of the suffragettes? <clears throat> yeah, very much so. Um, in fact, um, uh, maybe, you're, maybe this is the... Um, uh, Clapping emoji, hire more female prison guards. This is part of, part of the um, part of the podcast. Yeah, I mean, literally more female cops. You know. Yeah, and in fact, um, if, don't you love representation, Hugh? I feel so represented. <laughs> Perhaps, in fact, even worse because later this this particular branch would also have a key role to play in the formation of the interwar um, British fascist movement. Yeah, there's a great uh, there's a great little essay by a friend of the show, Asa Saracen, about uh, I think some of those women um, and uh, their relationship to the uh, British fascist movement. And uh, also, I mean, I know we we said uh, earlier in the show that we were we were talking less about race on this show than uh, most long conversations about policing would allow. Uh, but it's also worth noting that this is also a part of the suffragette movement um, that is very comfortable sort of playing on uh, racial anxieties about um, men of color and white women. Um, and this is a part of the suffragette movement, at least the US version of which um, expresses horror at a certain point that black men have been allowed, white women have been, are, are being allowed to vote and white women are not and expresses that horror in uh, quite racist terms. Yeah, and actually, um, we'll drop a link to Asa Saracen's um, piece in the show notes because um, in that piece they do talk about um, a number of the the women who we're going to talk about in this this part of the show. Um, indeed, many of those women who were involved in that part of the movement could could very well be future subjects for this podcast. Um, the first the first appearance of women involved in policing in 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 the UK was the formation of the Women Police Volunteers in 1914 by Margaret Damer Dawson and Nina Boyle, who were both suffragettes. Boyle had been inspired by her experience at the hands of the police as a suffragette, and uh, she thought that women both deserved to serve in the police force and also deserved to be dealt with by women police officers in case of arrest. Uh, Damer Dawson is quite a different character. Uh, an upper-class lesbian, she was more motivated by the urge to discipline the sexual ethics of other women. Shortly after the formation of the WPV, she actually split from, Vo from Boyle. Uh, Boyle was appalled by the institution of a curfew for working-class women in Cardiff, and also by the introduction of anti-sex work, le work legislation as part of the emergency wartime measures in the First World War. Damon Dawson was not appalled by these, by these measures. And, uh, and Boyle's opposition really has good grounding in her understanding of the Victorian criminalization of proletarian women as, as 
part of this legislation around contagious disease. Boyle therefore demanded um, Damon Dawson's resignation, but Damon Dawson launched a coup within the organisation. The first female police officer with the right to arrest was Edith Smith, who was part of the WPV, who was posted in Grantham to suppress sex work connected with the nearby army base. The appointment has made such a vast difference, she had gone to say. The prostitutes have found that it does not pay and the frivolous girls have bowed down. After Boyle's departure, Dame Dawson reshapes the organisation as the Women's Police Service with herself at the head and as her assistant, deputy, her partner, Mary Sophia Allen. In control of the service, the pair outfitted their recruits in crypto-military uniforms of jackboots, peaked hats and overcoats. Um, look them up uh, on, on Google if you want an image of this uniform and them in it. It's really quite something. And, and they turned its focus um, even more to suppressing prostitution and the so-called white slave trade, um, to disciplining working-class women living near barracks from uh, any temptation to fraternize with soldiers and so on. And yeah, just again, even the use of a term like the white slave trade as the sort of euphemism for sex work um, demonstrates this kind of locus of uh, race and gender and sexual anxieties um, and prejudices in uh, this kind of quote-unquote feminism. Yeah, absolutely. By this time, the, the women had shown proof of concept, as it were, of, of women policing. And in 1919, the Met launched its own women's service called the Metropolitan Police Women Patrols. But Dame Dawson and um, Allen continued with their organisation at WPS, and both were honoured with OBEs. Dame Dawson actually died in 1920, living, leaving Allen in control of the organisation. Despite no longer being recognised by the state, Allen continued training recruits, and she renamed the organisation the Women's Auxiliary Service. She'd put the WAS at the service of the state, um, and as well as continuing their campaign to suppress the sex industry, they were also involved in um, supporting the Royal Irish Constabulary and the Black and Tans during the Irish War of Independence. Allen advised the British government on policing during the occupation of the Rhineland after World War I. All this time, she was essentially posing as a, a leading British police official, despite being no such thing. The, police, the, the state didn't recognise her organisation as, as official, but they did actually liaise with her on a lot of things. She was essentially tolerated in, in this by the British state, um, despite once actually being arrested for illegally wearing a, a Met uniform in the early 20s because of her expertise and because of the work she did producing intelligence dossiers about leftist organisers and for putting the WAS to work in uh, suppressing the general strike. Uh, this is because, and I'm going to shock you here, Ben, Maria Sophia Allen was a fascist. Um, <gasps> <laughs> this was not uncommon, uh, like an uncommon political destination for uh, former suffragists from her particular ideological bent, you know, who shared her political leanings. Um, and unlike many of them, she actually never officially joined the British Union and the fascists. But she did, however, meet with numerous fascist leaders to discuss policing, from Hitler and Mussolini to Franco and uh, Owen O'Duffy, the Irish blue shirt leader. Alan was, um, was actually known by her friends and lovers as Robert, and women in her force addressed, addressed her as Sir, and she would continue to wear the uniform in public until she died. Inside the Met, women's policing was developing, 
Uh, the Daily Mail, which is hardly a, a bulwark for egalitarianism, actually approved. Quote, Women are likely to be firm and efficient constables. Our urban life will be cleaner by the presence of the woman constable. In the women constables, dealing with the minor male offence against the law, she is likely to be less lenient than the policeman and to be less inclined to look the other way. Man is apt to be merciful with man and woman. Women will not be cajoled. When a woman has a sense of duty, she is inflexible. Over the, over the following 50 years, the role of women uh, expanded in the Met, and by the time Cresta Dick joined in 1983, there were about 2,300 female police officers in uniform and uh, 174 in the CID, or Criminal Investigations Department. You may be about to talk about this, but uh, was there... Uh, I mean, I assume you will talk at some point about the kind of uh, misogyny that women working in the police force itself might have faced in addition to the horrible things that they did. But was there sort of mainstream conservative opposition to women serving as police officers on sort of grounds of that it was, you know, what, and as an anti-feminist might say, unbecoming or, or something like that? Not a massive movement against it. Um, I mean, to a certain extent, but as I said, the Daily Mail at the time were, in the 1920s, were, were, were very pro it. You know, I think it was seen as a positive thing it was more to do with the roles that women could have within it so it took a long time for women to be able to take on a lot of the a lot of the roles um and yeah in terms of the misogyny i mean you use the past tense there as we'll discuss in next week's show um the misogyny of the metropolitan police is uh, an ongoing concern in the extreme it's um there are some eye-watering and disgusting things to be to be um talked about there if I used the term misogyny in the past tense, it was only because I was describing about misogyny that happened in the past. But believe me, no, I course, have no course. confidence. I have no yeah. confidence whatsoever in the Metropolitan Police. So. Yeah, absolutely. This was sort of, yeah, the time she, she joined, things were, were still quite slow to develop. I mean, it wasn't until 1976 that um, female police officers were allowed to wear trousers on duty. Uh, and in 1986, I actually read the official guidance for women on duty that that was that if their their skirt or their trousers didn't have a, trun- a truncheon pocket, and they were given smaller, presumably more ladylike truncheons, uh, calling Doctor Freud, uh, they were they were instructed they were to carry their truncheon in their handbag. Yeah, as I said earlier, there's there's also this tension in this story because um, the story is not just about how women were treated in the police force, but how the the Met Police treat. LGBTQ people and and women, uh, amongst other minorities, and this is this is an equally long history that dates back to the earliest days of the Met. Like as as I discussed, the um, the policing of morality was a key factor in the, in the development of policing in Metropolis. The very formation of the police was founded on fears of the newly urbanized proletariat, both in terms of dissent and disorder, but also in terms of morality. Legislation around homosexuality introduced in the late Victorian era was strongly linked to, to other fears around um, people trafficking for sex, as we discussed under this um, racist euphemism of white slavery, with prostitution and with the abuse of minors. These moral panics, such as the one that followed the infamous new- newspaper investigation into child prostitution that was called the Maiden Tribute of Mo- Modern Babylon, uh, developed at the same time as sort of sexology was theorizing these new types like the modern homosexual. As a result, legislation and policing on homosexuality was frequently tied into vice and prostitution fears. The maiden tribute of modern Babylon and the subsequent scandal of the uh, Eliza Armstrong case that it, that it followed that was involved with it, 
This led to the passing of the Criminal Law Amendment Act 1885, which was aimed to curb child exploitation. However, tacked onto that act was the Labouchere Amendment, added um, almost as an afterthought by the Liberal MP and journalist Henry Labouchere. Labouchere was a zealous campaigner against the scourge of homosexuality and had been appalled at the collapse of the case against Thomas Ernst Boulton and Frederick William Park, the two, in the, in the, the terminology of the time, two transvestites who went by the name Fanny and Stella. Um, we'd probably discuss them far more within the framework of um, thinking about trans identities today. The, the case against them actually collapsed because it couldn't be proved they'd actually engaged in anal sex. Labouchere's amendment massively broadcast abroad, massively broadened the, the scope the, for the spread of crimes for which people engaged in same-sex acti- activity could be prosecuted for. No longer did the police and prosecution have to prove that someone had literally ejaculated inside the anus of another man. <clears throat> uh, instead, this new crime of, quote, gross, un- gross indecency was introduced that was so ill-defined it could be used to prosecute everything, you know, from masturbation to even just kissing. Indeed, the introduction of procurement and the term, quote, party to the commission of in the law expanded the possibility of prosecution even further. Uh, Just coming onto somebody could theoretically be an offence, while the party two bit basically introduced conspiracy into the law. So allowing men to make out on your property or to hook up on your property, for example. This law, which remained basically on the books until the 1967 partial decriminalisation in England and Wales, uh, set the tone for the Met's relationship with homosexuality throughout the 20th century. These laws were, of course, tied into ideas of class and degeneracy, and they were bolstered by the Vagrancy Law Amendment Act of 1898 and the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1912, which both gave um, huge new public order powers to the police to crack down on cruising and queer social space. Probably the best account of the Met's relationship with homosexuals in the first half of the 20th century is in Matt Holbrook's brilliant book, Queer London, which is one of my Bibles. I'm, I'm always going back to it. As he points out, vice policing fluctuated in waves according to public pressure especially around the end of world wars um, and the anxieties around social change and demobilization that followed. And that continued even after the partial decriminalization of 1967. The Met was uncommonly attuned to the desire to crack down on queers. It was a particular interest of theirs, above and beyond the pressures that were put on them by government. This was an obsession for the Met. Indeed, one of the functions of the 1967 Act was to actually pressure homosexual life back into the private sphere and so justify increased suppression of queerness in public spaces. Between 66 and the mid-1970s, prosecutions of homosexuals for these offences actually rose 55% to 2,798, aided by the use of so-called pretty policemen who were used as bait, you know, hot, hot coppers, who would hang out in public toilets trying to catch procurers in a form of entrapment. The aftermath of decriminalisation actually increased persecution for for many uh, queer people, especially those without the wherewithal to own their own homes. So when Cressida Dick joined the police in the early 1980s, um, homophobia was still essentially official police policy. Throughout the 1980s, police frequently raided not just um, cottages and cruising grounds. Cottages, for our American listeners, are um, 
tea rooms, I think, in America, which incidentally they still do today, of course. But we're also raiding clubs, bars, um, even bookshops. Police regularly hung out outside venues like the Colhern in um, Earl's Court or the RVT, the Royal Vauxhall Tavern in Vauxhall, looking for easy arrests or to hound customers. This, of course, has to be seen in the context of how the Conservative government in the 1980s, um, assisted by the media, stoked fear of urban centres. Thatcher had built a consensus for increasing police powers by, by dint of creating this image of the inner cities as lawless places where a moral order, the sort of conservative moral order she built as a foundation of her public image, had broken down. This was built in, linked intrinsically, of course, with the racist policing that people of colour in the UK cities had, had to endure, the stop and search, um, sus laws, harassment, and the murders of people of colour in police custody. Again, an ongoing concern. Police persecution through the 1980s of these communities often led to the communities fighting back, as in the Brixton riots in London, the Toxteth riots in Liverpool, and the Handsworth riots in Birmingham. These uprisings were capitalised on to further Thatcher's campaign, allowing her to increase police powers and stoke the fears of conservative white suburbanites, i.e. her voters, about the dangers of cities and which were obviously seen as labour strongholds, and um, to suppress campaigns by the left in cities to increase funding for initiatives that would help minorities, uh, part of the sort of so-called loony left fears of the early 80s. As such, racism and homophobia were baked into a police culture that was already uh, racist and homophobic. It it reflected the anxieties of the suburbs and allowed the police to conceptualise themselves as this so-called thin blue line between order and chaos. This thin blue line ideology, of course, allows cops to justify all sorts of discriminatory, brutal and corrupt behaviour as the sort of tough necessity, necessary evils that are needed to defend the law abiding. This, this attitude is perhaps best encapsulated in the, in the line that's often misattributed to George Orwell. Quote, we sleep safely on our beds because rough men stand ready in the night to visit violence on those who would harm us. It's, it's a paranoid inversion of the actual power relationship between rich and poor, between white people and people of colour, that exacerbates oppression. It's like these people are coming to get us, therefore we have to use any and all uh, means necessary to, to stamp down on them first. Within the gay community, this harassment by the cops left them open to abuse and blackmail with nowhere ready to seek help. Peter Kelly, who worked for Gallup, the, gun, the gay London police monitoring group that was established in the early, early 1980s to monitor police homophobia, said, quote, Generally, people wouldn't have gone to the police and wouldn't have been taken seriously if they had. They'd, they'd have been likely to be judged and ridiculed. That's certainly true. According to one Gallup report at the time, and you can actually download their reports going right back to the early 1980s from their websites, and they are really incredible um, historical documents of, of police oppression. Uh, in one of these reports, when, when one man called the police into a gay pub after it was attacked by a gang of straight men, the policeman replied, what do you expect? You're a queer in a queer pub. When another complaint complained of having been unfairly detained at a gay pub and that this was a perversion of justice, the officer told him, I hate pufters and I enjoy perverting justice. These um, these Gallup reports are just crammed with these cases, including one gay man who, um, having been attacked in the head with a hammer, was then thrown into a cell without medical treatment and had scrawled on the door, beware AIDS. 
the rising AIDS crisis at the time was, of course, perfect fodder for Thatcher's moral crusade and proof of the moral collapse that she said that she was there to halt. When police raided the RVT in 1987, they actually came in wearing rubber gloves, uh, and a needless and purposefully stigmatizing gesture towards the, the punters. Lily Savage, the famous drag queen who was on stage at the time, actually called out, well, 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 looks like we've got help with the washing up. That's just, that's just such a wonderful, uh, oh God. It's like when, uh, it's like the drag queen behind the, behind <laughs> the, uh, bar at the Stonewall, who was also a pill dealer who, uh, would refer to the cops who raided as Lily Law, you know. I mean, drag queens are like that because cops are like that, you know? It's a, it's a, it's a form of entertainment. It comes from this environment. It's true. And it comes from, yeah, it comes from, it's a, it's this mode of resistance, however you can, you know? Yeah. Um, perhaps one of the most insidious results of this Met's homophobia in the 1980s, however, was their handling of a, a number of serial killers who stalked the gay community. These included Dennis Nielsen, who killed between 12 and 15 young men who he had met at gay bars or picked up on the street between the late 70s and early 80s. Michael Lupo, uh, and in the early 1990s, Colin Ireland, who picked up men who were into playing the submissive role in BDSM play <clears throat> before murdering them. In all three cases, serious shortcomings in the investigations were attributed by many in the gay community to the, their victims being gay. Uh, police assumptions about the victims being part of this sort of listless, wayward, queer life uh, and a lack of interest, of course, in their disappearance. It, you know, it, they, they could well have prevented the, the killers earlier had they taken, you know, more consideration of these things. And, and instead, they allowed them to kill again. And we'll come back to this um, in next week's show, um, because, again, this is this is not something that is relegated to the past. So this was the attitude and the atmosphere of the police in the 1980s when, when Cressida Dick signed up to the force. She didn't stay on the constable's beat very long, however. She was part of this accelerated promotion scheme, and she progressed through the ranks until by the early 90s she was already a chief inspector. In 1995, she transferred out of the Met to Thames Valley Police, a large English constabulary that covers Berkshire, Buckinghamshire and Oxfordshire. Uh, she was an, an inspector which was another promotion. It's clear from testimony at the time that Dick was, to some extent, part of a new, more modern approach to policing. Um, a council leader said that, quote, she was like a breath of fresh air, progressive, liberal, intelligent, full of new ideas. She was very good at not over-policing over protests and demonstrations, but at the same time, she worked with us to expand the use of CCTV and to address crime on the estates, end quote. I think there's something there that's useful to think about. Like clearly, Cressesick was very talented, um, innovative, efficient. Something that actually has commented on her throughout her career. Yet she's talented at working within the the frameworks and logics of policing as it exists in the UK. After only a couple of years working with Thames Valley, she returned to education, getting a master's in criminology from Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge. Oxford clearly, well, Oxbridge, sorry, uh, clearly suits her. She was top of the class. She then returned to the Met, where she was appointed head of the force's diversity directorate. Now, let's be honest, and also to be fair to her here, this is not a cushy job to land in at the best of times, and especially in the early 2000s. You know, she's really taking something on there. 
1999, the McPherson report was released into uh, police in, uh, the, the police investigation, investigation of the racist murder of Stephen Lawrence by a group of white racist thugs in South London. This report was really an earthquake in, in Britain, precisely because it was a white establishment figure, uh, a high court judge, saying out loud, at least partly, what black and Asian Londoners had been saying for decades, that it wasn't a few so-called bad apples, but it, the Metropolitan Police itself that was, in the words of the McPherson report, institutionally racist. In McPherson's own words, institutional racism is, quote, the collective failure of an organisation to provide an appropriate and professional service to people because of their colour, culture or ethnic origin. It can be seen or detected in processes, attitudes and behaviour that amount to discrimination through prejudice, ignorance, thoughtlessness and racist stereotyping, which disadvantage minority ethnic people. The, the concept of institutional racism <clears throat> in quite a different form uh, was was pioneered by, um, amongst other people, the one-time Black Panther theorist and, and organiser Stokely Carmichael, uh, later known as Kwame Ture, uh, alongside Charles V. Hamilton in their book Black Power, The Politics of Liberation. So you can see how these things, you know, start in one position and, and become part of a wider discourse, even if they are seen as extreme at the time. The report then concluded that the investigation into Lawrence's murder was, quote, marred by a combination of professional incompetence, institutional racism, and a failure of leadership. Dick was charged with helping to implement many of the recommendations of that report. In 2003, the year she left the job, she said in an interview of The Independent, quote, it's very difficult to imagine the situation where we will say we are no longer institutionally racist. It's a long way off. It is certainly obtainable to be more sensitive than we are and reduce it further. But a point about racism is it's about the structure of society and power differential and how institutions operate, end quote. What an extraordinary thing for someone to say who's a police officer. Like what, what if you believe yeah. this, then why do you do this job? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like it, it, she makes it. Yes. The institution society, like the one that you <laughs> for that yeah. you chose to work for that you came from you came from this fucking academic family docs you could on any goddamn thing and you decided to do this <clears throat> excuse me and <sighs> yeah no she makes she makes a very good point but that the police in reality are the force that are established in order to protect that very power differential uh, there's no connecting of those dots i guess um Oy. i think it's partly partly believing the propaganda and partly the same same thing we talked about earlier, this ideology of the thin blue line. And anyway, she went on to then defend the Met by comparing them to other organisations and by complaining, com by claiming that the, the task was harder in London because there was less tolerance of racist attitudes, something that other forces didn't face, which is like a bizarre way to, to, uh -huh. it, to say, like, it's hard, for, it's hard for us to deal with racism because... There's so many black people here that they're very sensitive about it. You know, if I was in if I was in Oxfordshire, then no one would care. It's like, come on, um, Jesus Christ, these people. Yeah, she she then say um, you can't you can't do this. You can't be this person if you have one ounce of self awareness. One ounce of self awareness, and you would not be able to do this. Yeah. She, she then went on to say, quote, I would say there is not an institution out there that could say we are not racist, but I think there has been a sea change and we have changed dramatically. You don't have to go very far to find private and public organisations that have not moved very far down this road. 
I do think we have put more resources into this issue and have come further than many other organisations. As Dick rises through the ranks, you'll, you'll see a very similar sort of PR response as a matter of course from her. There is an admission to a limited extent of the problem, followed by complacency about its significance, uh, an insistence that to all intents and purposes it's being tackled, and then a huge amount of defensiveness on behalf of the police to any further criticism. As we'll see later, the problem is that over the course of decades, there is very little evidence that there's any change at all. So, so yeah, this is the end of part one of our profile of Cresta Dick. Um, we'll come back next week to discuss her history uh, of policing operations from her involvement in the death of Jean-Charles de Menezes uh, onwards and onto her historic promotion as Commissioner of Metropolitan Police. Thanks so much to all our listeners, especially those who have shared and reviewed the show over the years. It really helps. And a special thank you to all our Patreon subscribers who really help keep the show on the road and allow us to keep making bad gays. If you want to help support the show, head on over to badgazepod.com and in return, there's a whole bunch of great rewards, including books and t-shirts. Speaking of books, uh, our book, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History, is now available for pre-order from Verso Books and will be published in June of 2022. The book profiles 14 insidious inverts all the way from the Emperor Hadrian to the Dutch far-right politician Pim Fortown and uh, basically presents a long extended argument for why homosexuality didn't work and what we might want to try to do instead. Um, now, every episode, we're going to uh, talk about a different little sort of did you know fact from the book. And so today's is, did you know that in addition to conquering half of Europe, Frederick the Great wrote himself more than 200 flute concertos? Where did he find the time? For the full story, pre-order Bad Gays, A Homosexual History from Verso Books, available now at badgazepod.com slash book. Well, thanks, you for that. Uh, and that's a great way to start this conversation. And, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to learning more next week already. Um, I think the most interesting kind of theme or one of the biggest themes that, that, that comes out of uh, the part of the story we've already heard is this kind of history of antagonism between uh, the queer communities and the police. You talked a little bit about how uh, certain uh, people, you know, the uh, drag queen in the, in the Royal Vauxhall Tavern uh, responded when uh, the place was um, raided. Uh, could you talk a little bit more maybe about some kind of organized uh, queer community responses to uh, bad policing in uh, then and now and kind of the history of that as it kind of shadows the history of, um, well, let me phrase it another way. Um, if the whole development of the idea of gay rights uh, or, or gay liberation leads to two things, one of which being queer opposition to policing and one of which leads to more gay cops. Um, if over the course of Cressida Dick's career, we see the development of more gay cops in sort of embodied by her, what's a little bit of the history of the kind of uh, queer opposition to policing during that time? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, the lot of the gay rights movement as it existed in the UK prior to um, <clears throat> the moment of Stonewall and Stonewall in America did have an influence, Stonewall riots that is, uh, prior to Stonewall in America, did go on to influence stuff in the UK. So there was a gay liberation movement, uh, an organisation that was founded um, shortly after the American organisation. Um, but before that, 
a lot of the uh, organization was specifically formed around law reform uh, and around high-profile court cases, one of the, the biggest being the prosecution of Lord Montague in the 1950s for um, for him and uh, a friend of his, um, Peter Wiles Blood, uh, having a sort of um, party, let's say, <laughs> with two... Um, yeah. With two two uh, young RAF RAF officers in a very discreet um, beachside hut on his his own private estate, and later being prosecuted and going to jail for it. And um, uh, Peter Wildblood actually was incredibly brave and sort of essentially came out and wrote a book about it called Against the Law, um, which was a sort of plea for law reform and was one of the things that really kickstarted the. That some of that movement, um, he was actually the only named homosexual uh, witness at, in the Wolfenden report. <clears throat> so that's kind of before uh, this sort of moment of Stonewall, then law reform was obviously a huge part. And actually, of course, as a result, um, much earlier than in the US, there was a reform of sexual offences laws to decriminal- partially decriminalise uh, certain types of same-sex behaviour between men in 1967. Um, but since then, um, obviously there has been stuff like, um, Gallup, which I mentioned, there's been a lot of stuff with also other civil society organizations like Amnesty, uh, as we discussed. Um, but a lot of the sort of politics around it is, is actually around policing was also tied up with other campaigns. So I'm thinking, for example, under Thatcher, the support, the, the very famous case now of the lesbians and gay support of minors. Um, <clears throat> a lot of the politics around lesbians and gay support of minors was to do with a sense of solidarity because both were facing um, harassment by the police, uh, an attack on their civil liberties by the police. You know, the, the, the cracking down on, for example, flying pickets within mining communities or the harassment of picket, picketers or picketers uh, or, or striking families. Uh, striking minors' families, example, by, by police, was mirrored in um, the harassment of LGBTQ people outside clubs and in their going about their lives and their, the fact they had no they had no recourse to the police um, as being outside. So there's a link there between, you know, within that sort of political movement. And um, I guess later, those links start to develop around race um, and and also immigration. So now you have organisations like um, Lesbians and Gay Support of Migrants, uh, which is a sort of queer-run project to uh, to stop deportations. And it, it engages with a much more wider idea of policing, obviously, than just the Met Police, but also immigration, borders, deportation centres, etc., etc. <clears throat> so um, so so that, that there's been these two sort of strands. Um, and Stonewall obviously was was focused on um, a lot of legal reform that was based around um, Section Twenty Eight, which was the the British law that forbid the promotion of homosexuality as pretended families within schools and public um, public libraries, etc. So yeah, they 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 sort of tie together in a bit of a, a messy way, but there is always and has always been within the LGBTQ movement in the UK a um, a focus on on the police. Right. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And and it, it's interesting that that element of the sort of law reform movement uh, is maybe uh, more looking to, I mean, it, it, it's probably beyond their wildest dreams at that point, but that's maybe what we see the evolution from of this idea that, that it should be our aspiration to somehow um, join civil society enough that we could uh, be cops instead of um, fighting the idea of cops. I mean, I think it's too easy to retrospectively brand people who are involved in that then as being somehow uh, ancestors of the more liberal, um, more gay cops sort of idea now. Like, I think you have to remember that, like, back then, the limits of what's possible and the intensity of the oppression is such that in 1953, saying, uh, let's end all criminalization of same-sex activity was a far more radical conception that took a lot more bravery to, to, to sort of be part of. And, and organizations like CHE, they um, campaign for homosexual equality, et cetera, et cetera, were within their context, although their politics might not be seen as radical today, um, astonishingly forward-thinking and brave. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> And, and a lot of the, for example, a, a lot of the arguments were to do with decriminalization precisely because, um, blackmail was used so much against gay men and gay men couldn't, like, when, when gay men were trying to deal with the police, they, they would often go there saying, you know, like, this, this guy who was around my house has robbed me. Uh, and then the, they would then become victims of both the police and these, these other, you know, people as well. Um, so I think that's important to say. And, I think the, also the other thing to say on this is the way that the um, the Met have used the idea that they are, that they are more tolerant, are becoming more tolerant. They've they in order to broadcast that they've used um, their LGBT members as a way of broadcasting that they are reforming. So you you first get the first um, sort of gay. Police, so like uh, I, I can't exactly remember the name. I think it's called the Gay Police Association or something like this. Like the first um, organization for gay people within the police in I think the early nineties, um, <clears throat> and they get very short shrift, obviously. But by the early two thousands, that's sort of changing directly as a result of uh, parts of the police that, for example, the diversity director at the Crestic was in, and actually a very significant moment was in two thousand and three when the police actually dropped a very, very long-standing ban on people being, on the, on policemen being allowed to march in political parades, which is a, a very sens- sensible ban, does make a lot of sense in English uh, or, or British history. They actually dropped that specifically to allow pe- uh, gay officers to march in pride parades. So that was like a, a tactical decision, I think, to, as part of a PR exercise in the wake of the McPherson report and has been an ongoing debate that has sort of, I guess, split LGBTQ politics in the UK um, ever since about the appropriateness of um, gay cops marching when they're also obviously part of this organisation. It's like so, uh, so oppressive. <clears throat> and especially the, 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 the racial... D- dynamic there which is like white sort of white usually gay men who have um like to be have liked the idea they're being welcomed into liberal society to therefore defend the police because they're marching and not thinking about the fact that if cops are marching there's loads of other people who won't be marching 
you know, you're, you're excluding people just by their presence. Um, but if you're a, a, a young person of color, for example, a young queer person of color, a young trans person who is at the, the hard ends, the fist end of the, the cops, as it were, then you're not going to, um, you're not going to like march with them. So you're, you're excluding people by being inclusive, so-called inclusive in that way. Um, and on that note, I, I would make a prediction that I may well be proved wrong, that actually we might not see cops marching in pride very much longer, not just because of campaigns against the marching in pride from within the gay community, but because as part of a um, the resurgent right and also as part of the sort of transphobic attitudes that are becoming even more prevalent than ever, I think, in the UK, that um, there's more and more pushback from the right against cops being part of a so-called woke agenda and you know the the rainbow flag cop cars and stuff that you you might also see a pushback from the right on that um before too long uh in the same way that you know lots of organizations are dropping stone walls training training programs etc etc um i wouldn't be surprised if uh you stop seeing gay cops at pride and again just the idea that like stonewall or cops at pride is some kind of radical <laughs> represents some kind of radical like <laughs> Weird leftist agenda. Yeah, right. It's got. It's, I mean, for, for for people who've been involved in queer politics for um, more than four and a half minutes, it's absolutely wild to 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 remember how. Yeah, to to, to think that that Stonewall are, are some sort of like radical leftist organization trying to infiltrate society to you know push this agenda. But if you are a turf, that is reality to you. Listening to um, the the story of, of Cressida Dick um, and of her kind of class position and background and, and upbringing and the intersection that you eloquently talked about of that with this particular version of, of feminism, I mean, you did you did speak a bit about this. Maybe you, you could go more into it. Um, the difference between or the sort of evolution of um, this particular kind of uh, feminism that is very invested in the policing of certain kinds of morality, a kind of carceral feminism, you might say, um, and how you think Cressida Dick kind of relates to that, to that evolution. And we see it now in kind of anti-sex work feminisms and anti-trans feminisms um, and a lot of other, a lot of other different formations. Yeah. I mean, much in the same way that you can talk about these different, as we were just talking about these different um, strands within LGBTQ politics towards integration, towards relationships with the police and the state, towards state violence, towards morality, et cetera, et cetera. You get the same throughout the history, obviously, of the feminist movement. And uh, if you look back in the Victorian era, the relationship between um, some of the early uh, aspects of the women's movement that were very, very much concerned with the sexual ethics of working class women, um, that really adopted a a carceral framework for thinking about the feminism. Um, and I think you can still see the same position today, obviously within certain types of anti-sex work feminism. I would say these are all contested uh, legacies within both fem- feminism and queer politics. <clears throat> and there's always nuance around the edges, but I think you can definitely see, see a continuing relationship in that way. When it comes to Cressida Dick, um, I, I, I really don't know enough about her specific political standings around, around this, um, as a, as a personal issue. 
Um, so I wouldn't like to comment on that specifically, but I do think, yeah, like it's worth thinking about um, the willingness to to uh, to turn to the state and to use carceral solutions to, to to problems of the patriarchy. And I think, as we'll discuss next week, the the real problem there is to do with the alliances that you make. Um, on on one hand, uh, the 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 development of carceral feminism and the ability to, for carceral feminists in the Victorian era to influence um, political policy, to, to influence the law, really comes down to their alliance, alliance with newspapers at the time. Uh, people like W.T. Stead, which was, a, a, who was a key driver um, behind the Criminal Law Amendment Act. So I think you, there's, there's, a, there's a lot, there are a lot of, um, Lessons, let's say, a lot of pressing, prescient moments when you read that history of these fears around contagious disease, these fears, you know, this medicalization uh, of this discourse, and then the, the the need, the urgent need to produce law reform, and the sense of a constant threat uh, that's being produced by middle class uh, carceral feminists in relationship to the to the. Um, to the newspapers, which obviously has um, an analogy that we can read quite clearly today. Um, and secondly, that relationship of these, that passing a law pro- prohibiting something doesn't make that thing go away, which is amazing that people still haven't necessarily grasped that. And so therefore pr- producing the ability for the police to involve themselves in a lot of these social situations and then, so you basically, if you're making alliance with the police, then you also have to look at the way that the police, who the police are, and the way the police act. And as we'll um, discuss next week, the concept of the Metropolitan Police being full of people who are concerned for women's safety and who have the best interests of women at heart is um, disturbingly naive and puts so many women and especially women of color um queer women and working class women um at the um at the mercy of truly some of the most depraved misogynists in society and i think also um you know this is also something that has to do with the nature of of the police and policing itself right you know um there is no kind of alliance with the police, no matter, you know, if you could, even if you could somehow imagine a police force in which there were no uh, gender imbalances whatsoever, which certainly would not resemble any police force I've ever heard of, um, you would still be in the situation of having it be a police force with all the things that are true about police forces. Right. And this, this is very much what we'll discuss next week, the relationship between this idea of the police force as reformable and the reality of the police force um, as an ideological institution and um, Cressidic's relationship with both. Well, it sounds like we have a lot to look forward to uh, next week. Um, should we talk about some of the sources that you used on this episode this week or should we wait until next week to get them all out there? Um, let's, let's wait until next week for the sources. Um, on that note... There are, I, I have a lot of sources and obviously because of the nature of this profile, they're mainly news stories. So I'm not going to run through them all, but we will put all those sources I've used in writing this 
and ne- uh, <clears throat> up online next week with the second part. But but also at the same time, uh, if you're interested in this story, I put together a few resources for further reading and f- if you want to get involved a bit more, I guess. Um, so maybe I'll just run through those now. The first of which is that the um, podcast I mentioned, Human Resources with Moya, Lothian, McLean. Um, the Lords of the Manor episodes in particular, which focuses on Sir Robert Peel, is very interesting. Um, the book I just mentioned, um, Matt Holbrook, uh, Queer London, absolutely essential reading for understanding the development of uh, vice policing against uh, against gay men specifically in, in London in the 20th century. And the podcast Untold, the Daniel Morgan murder, uh, which will feature we'll discuss a bit next week but that that also uh, involves an episode relating to Stephen Lawrence's murder and a link between the two killings and in terms of organizations if you're interested um and in learning more about the relationship between the police and Londoners uh, there is the London campaign against police and state violence which you can find at lcapsv.net uh, united friends and families campaign which you can find at uffcampaign.org which campaigns on behalf of um people who died at the hands of the police uh, Sisters Uncut, sistersuncut.org, who are uh, integrally involved with some of the stuff we'll be talking about next week. And Inquest, which is a, a charity that focuses on getting the truth, uh, accountability, and uh, hopefully justice for state-related deaths in the UK. And that's uh, inquest.org.uk. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for those links. And we certainly hope that you join us in in learning more about these organizations and these movements and um until next week you can follow me on twitter at ben writes things you can follow me on twitter at hugh lemmy or my newsletter hugh.substack.com until next week bye bye Bad. 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 Bad.